This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InnoVarsity Press. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. There's different kinds of people who make sweet tea. Mm-hmm. If your spoon does not stand up in the tea because oh. there's so much sugar. <laughs> but then I like I like an Arnold Palmer. So I like a yeah. really, really tart lemonade and a yeah. really, really sweet tea. That's what my mom, my mom, I used to literally like get a face cramp when I first, yep. like, you know, yep. sweet tea when it hits you. <laughs> yes. And you just kind of like, Lord. That's, Lord. That's, that's the Lord's work. That's the Lord's work. I feel like for this episode more than any other, we need to like lay out who the characters in this drama are. <laughs> it's, it's so hard when you're talking to someone who's like family and you just forget to say, oh, you might not know who it is. So Jasmine Holmes is uh, obviously an African-American woman who wrote a book called Mother to Son. She is the daughter of a famous black pastor and her husband um, is an administrator at an evangelical seminary. She kind of was dealing with the dynamics of having certain expectations placed upon her because of her father and certain assumptions about her ideas and her husband's ideas because they come out of evangelical settings. And so if you're trying to figure out what's going on during some of the conversations in the podcast, it's really coming to grips with how does Jasmine, as a black woman, find her own voice and not just be defined by the men in her life. Me and Jasmine both released books a few months apart during a summer where America was going through great change. So we both published books dealing with race and injustice during a season when America was having a reckoning. And both of us operated in spaces or where people weren't always excited about having that conversation. And so dealing with some of the pushback and still maintaining your joy was something that I really wanted to explore. And also, I wanted to talk about how those things sometimes change us. What is it like to release something that you care about, that you put a lot of passion and thought into receive criticism and affirmation, and how do you balance those things? Welcome back to season two of the Disruptors Podcast. The reason I want to have you back, you like you, you're the only, you're, I shouldn't say this, I have so many friends who were on season one, we were popping the trunk. But I said, <laughs> now that we're back, I wanted to bring I wanted to bring you back because this is like a radically different place from yeah. season one to season two. And all of us um, have been through a lot. For the people who don't know, what book did you release um, in March? I wrote a book called Mother to Son, uh, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope. And it was letters to my son about really race, justice and relationships. The first time I talked to you was on the, on the last episode, and it was a very happy podcast. It was the happiest of all the episodes. It was like the relationship podcast. I got to talk yeah. about, you know, it was good. <laughs> but now we, I feel like we got slapped. I feel like we got slapped around. Yeah. We were young and naive. <laughs> and we were yes. just like living life and just telling jokes and talking about being moms and dads and relationships. But I feel like th- that was, we've gone through a pandemic and a real season of 
unrest. And now we just come through. Or we're we're not even coming through. We're recording this on Thursday. Mm-hmm. And the election, it looks like it's heading towards the Biden election. But there's all kinds of discussions about um, lawsuits. And so everything still seems unclear. But maybe I should yeah. just ask you, how has like the post author publishing world coming into a pandemic and racial unrest how has it changed you oh goodness it has i think for me because of the type of book that i wrote a lot of people who thought that they knew who i was and how i think and what my mindset is have learned that they were wrong yeah it was so weird because when i was writing the book a couple of years ago, I was like, you know, people have kind of stepped away from talking about this topic, but it's still super relevant to me in my life. So I'm going to just be faithful and I'm going to write this. And I don't know if it's going to be the national conversation when my book comes out, but it's a conversation that's going to be happening in my house. And then 2020 hit and everybody was talking about all the stuff that's in the book. Um, and I think people were, I don't, I don't know that people knew what to expect. Like I, I was on a couple of podcasts and people were like, so why are you writing a parenting book when your oldest is four? And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not, it's not a parenting book. It's a book about my hopes. It's a book about yeah. my prayers. And um, when I feel like on both sides of the aisle, I had people who were thinking that I would fit easily into a mold Um and read the book and realized that I'm an individual, just like all of us. <laughs> when you say a mo, what, what do you think they were expecting to get from the book? And you talked about both sides. So tell yeah. me like two misperceptions of what people expected to get from you versus what you think you gave them. For sure. I had one, one person come to me and was like, yeah, I did not know how conservative you were before I read your book it kind of shocked me because I was expecting you to be like a raging liberal, whatever that means. Um, and so, Liberal just means black person who disagrees yeah, with them. Exactly. The I'm like raging liberal. And also like you saw, and you can relate to this, I'm sure it's like, well, where'd you get that idea? Yeah. Like, why did you think that about me in the first place? What have I said that made you, but I digress. Yes. Um, no, 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 then, no, no, no. Don't, don't digress because <laughs> so we, we both find ourselves in similar situations because yeah. I wrote Reading While Black two or three years ago. Um, and it's a similar situation. Like, I wrote it in the, the, I started writing the book coming into what became the Trump presidency. Yeah. But I didn't know at the time that, like, America was going to become what it came, but it became. And so my book was released a few months later, but during, into the same period. Mm-hmm. And there was a sense in which, like, for every person who said, thank you, the, there was somebody else who said, have you abandoned the faith? Yep. And so yep. it, how was that, like, how was that emotional? It, it's, that's what I was trying to get at. So you said that, you know, one group says you're, you're too conservative. The mm-hmm. other group thinks that you were too liberal. Yeah. Even the fact that I'm just talking about race makes me liberal. Um, doesn't matter that I'm raising a black son in no. America in 2020. Talking about race makes me liberal. So how... And, and it's funny because I can hear I can hear it in your voice. I rem, I remember I remember the the joy in, in Jasmine's voice and the joy in mine. So I'm not even trying to play it off. I just yeah. feel like we have been smacked around. Oh, it's been rough. And I but I remember after the last podcast, you called me and you were like, "Hey, I we talked about your dad a little bit. I want to cut that out because I don't want this podcast to be about him. 
I want it to be about you. And I feel like black women are often seen in relation to whatever black man, which I really appreciated. And I'd already had such a good time in the podcast. And then I, you were on speaker when I talked to you and Philip looked at me and he was like, okay, I get, I get why you like this dude. Like he gets it. I wanted to respect Jasmine. I want you to give, I want to give you your moment. And I, and to be honest, I'm not super plugged in to kind of like the, I wasn't at the time, like the intramural evangelical fights. So people really thought it was weird that I didn't really know who your dad was. But I, I really loved. didn't. I didn't. That's like, why we had such a good time, yeah. honestly. Yeah. So like, I, when I say I didn't know, I li- I, like, I'm an Anglican. So yep. like, you know how far Anglican is from like Southern, is your dad Southern Baptist? I've seen, I shows you, I haven't yes. even deep dived it yet. I, so 1689. Yeah, yeah. So I was <laughs> miles away. Now, trust me, in the years since, since, since we talked, I've gotten a lot of um, email. Actually, and, and here's the funny thing. Hope that's not bad. I still haven't listened to like the sermons of things. People started sending them to me. That's what they did. Um, like in the last, I don't, after, after reading Wild Black, a segment of evangelicalism said there's one black man I needed to listen to and learn from. And that was your father. And that's when I was introduced to him. So I, but coming into last season, I didn't know. So that's like before all of this stuff started happening and jumping off, I've had so many people send me his daughter, his videos and be like, have you seen this? Like, I had one person who sent it to me, and I was like, that's my dad. And she was like, yeah, but have you watched it? And I was oh. like, wow, okay, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember, okay. I, I remember. I told you, like, me and Philip, we need to we need to link up one day. Because I remember one time, Philip slid on the internet and told everybody to fall back because that was my yep. wife. I was like, that's what I'm talking yep. about. That's my energy, Philip. <laughs> that's my energy. <laughs> and that is him 100%. Uh, it has been, we have been in this weird fishbowl and it, and it was like this back in 2014 when we first got married um okay. after my michael brown um and it's kind of been a resurgence of people just like i mean there was a time i got off twitter for a few weeks because every day somebody was getting on twitter and telling me what a disappointment i was to my dad and somebody compared me to judas oh like oh yeah because i was like it's weird how people tell me that i'm a disappointment to my dad but like i'm I know my dad and I'm not a disappointment to yeah. him. So and and I was like, I'm I'm his disciple. Like he raised me to think for myself. So and then and then somebody was like, Well, yeah, but like Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. And I was like, Wow. 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 Spicy. Let me tell you what I wanted to avoid as a as a black Christian who is coming into the public. It may seem like it was way more planned, but I just cause I kind of consume culture. Mm-hmm, I like mm-hmm. watched like what happened to um, people like Lecrae or Jamar Tisby, just yeah. African-Americans who talked about justice, who were then extremely vil- vilified mm-hmm. by segments of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And I talked, Jamar was on the, on the podcast last year, and he talked about how long it took him to recover from that emotionally yeah. um, and yeah. the spiritual damage that it does. To, even if you know that you're right, it does, it hurts. Yeah. And so what I said to myself and I'm not accusing Jamar of being bitter, so that's not that's not what I'm trying to say. What no, I said, not. what I was trying to say, I I didn't want I didn't want people's criticisms to change me. Yeah, of course. And so I said from the beginning, I didn't want to establish myself in a way that like depended upon somebody's approval, or depending on somebody's disapproval. Or disapproval, I mean, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So disapproval. And so I was not even a part of 
Southern kind of Baptist. We need to keep it one hundred. It's like it's like the Southern Baptist people and a lot of like super reformed people. Those are the people yeah. who we're talking about. Yeah. So. I used to think to myself, and this is one of the things that like they sh- that I've learned. I used to think that the question was like whether or not the argument was biblical mm-hmm. or reasonable. Mm-hmm. But when I saw reasonable people like being attacked, I'm like, and this is no shade. I'm like, Jasper just wrote a book about how to raise black. Ki- like, what y'all mad about? Right. And if right. that and if that's the level of anger, it's merely our existence that is the problem, not the arguments that we make. It's yeah, it's people gravitating towards a message for better or for worse that makes them more comfortable, um, something that is more palatable to them. And honestly, like I the video that everybody's passing around from my dad, I was like, so what did you think about the part where you talked about police brutality? And people are like, what? I'm like, y'all, are, this is some selective hearing. <laughs> Here, here's the question. And this is like the the question that kind of gave me a lot of freedom is is there an example of any black person and i'm and maybe this is for the, for the listeners for the person who hate listens to the disruptors podcast here's some google <laughs> research for you is there an example of a black person who you disagree with who is not also a heretic or is that a completely overlapping category oh and so what i'm saying is when you get to the point where every single, like the only black people who get it are the black people who agree, then we're in a deep, we're in a, we're in it because we on a spectrum. And this is, this is the other problem. They're not actually talking to the people who hold the views that they're critical of. They're just reaching to the proximate black person. And each time like another segment of black people leave, they just find the next proximate black person. So Philip wrote an article called We Need to Be Uncomfortable and it led to this backlash and you've released your book and it's led to people sending you, you know, videos of your own dad. How have you maintained your joy in the middle of it? Part of it is just understanding that people have such a limited understanding of who we are. I talked about therapy in the last podcast. I'm talking about it in this podcast because it's very important, but we've just... Philip and I have both noticed that so many of these issues just come from people projecting their own personal baggage on us and wanting us to be not individuals, but tools for their affirmation of whatever they think and whatever they feel. So they read Philip's article and they feel like an ownership of him. Like, you should say this, you should say that, because that's the kind of mouthpiece that I am comfortable with. Or they read my book. And they know that I was homeschooled and they know that, you know, I did the whole courtship thing, you know, and they're like, okay, this is what we want our mascot to be. And you're not being a good mascot. And you say that you don't want to be a mascot and that's not an option. So I think understanding that that's, that's not on me. Like if somebody wants me to be a mascot for everything that it means to grow up and be a perfect homeschool graduate who has perfect marriage and perfect kids and perfect, that's on them. I think at a certain point, people would like wonder why they can't find the right kind of black person. Yeah. Like, oh, no, totally. Because it feels like we get cycled through in certain yes, spaces. And, and And that's what I mean when I talk about a lot of the conversation is with the black person who is proximate to them. So they mm-hmm. see somebody black do something on TV or they read about a black person on Fox News, and then they say, well, where's the closest black person that I can find? And so they actually find the black people who are trying to help. Yep. 
And then they say, and, and it is true, they say, like, you're supposed to be one of our black people. And one yeah. of the interesting things about it is, and, and it's I, I was just reading um, someone else on the Internet who, who said, you know what, I'm still a Christian, but I don't hang out in these spaces anymore. Stay out of my comments. Because it's not only do you feel like you're owned by a certain community, they don't let you leave. No. And I'm not talking and I'm not talking about leaving the space leaving the faith. Let me be clear. I'm not talking about leaving Christianity. I'm talking about once they have anointed you as someone who the kind of black person that they like Mm -hmm. and you disappoint them, they never see stop trying to turn you back into that black person again. They're consistently disappointed that you are not who they want you to be. And the fact that they cycle through, the fact that there's graveyards filled or spiritual graveyards filled with black people whose faith has been wrecked on the shores of expectations Mm -hmm. ought to raise the question of why can't we just find, maybe because we don't exist. And if we don't exist, maybe it's because you're trying to fit us into a place that we weren't meant to fit and i don't and, and this is one of the things and forgive me for rambling but this is one of the things that like i will actually defend black people who disagree with me so like yeah. i don't actually think that like we all need to be like me or even the fact that like your father can't hold the opinions that he holds mm-hmm. and he can come across those things honestly and if i was sitting in a room if i was sitting somewhere with your dad and me and you and him we could have a conversation that's a great oh, yeah. conversation with him it's not a great conversation when he is like becomes the mold that we all have to fit into and i think that's where the difficulty comes from even from his daughter not that you're mad at your father and and one of the great things that it's funny when you go back and re-listen to the podcast i I hear it with like more context um it's not that you're mad at your father you're mad at he's the, the person that I call yeah. whenever stuff gets crazy. I'm like, Dad, get your people. I don't know. He's like, does, I'm sorry, baby. Does he have? Does he have? What? Sorry, this is. Does he have? Can, can does he have control? I mean, can he do that? Does it even work? No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. He he put up a a whole like Instagram post about my book and how proud he was of it and like how he like loved it and it was awesome. And his followers were just like, oh, he's such a good dad. Like, even when she's going in the wrong direction, <laughs> he's still. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know what to I'm, tell you. I can't help you. So I can't help you. So, okay, then, though, I get that. There's been the haters. They've been the haters. They've gotten 15 minutes of energy. Let's just put them to the side and yeah. say, how have black mothers responded to what you, you've written? And not even... Black mothers, have mothers in general responded to your message? It's been so cool to have, um, again, I'm new to Mississippi. I've only been here for four years and I have a lifetime to go before I understand these weird people. But it's been a really neat experience to have people in my community read the book and to see like it's showing up in these local bookstores and it's, you know, people that whose kids I teach are reading it and it's people that go to my church are reading it. And it's been a cool experience talking to moms because I think motherhood is just this universal thing. And it's a really, really easy entrance point to why these conversations matter and why we need to be having these conversations. And so I've had just innumerable conversations with moms who, and honestly, I cannot complain at my book has right now, let's see, you know, give it six months. But right now my book only has one bad review on Amazon. I, I can't complain. Like it's and not tell like him, tell like, him I said pull up, whoever the reviewer is. <laughs> it's 
it's not like people yeah. are like beating up on it. You know, it's 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 been a it's been a fine experience. Um, and most of the criticism that I've received has been from people who haven't even taken the time to read it yet. But from people who have taken the time to read it, I've just gotten so much feedback about the really what I hear over and over again is the conversations that it starts. Yeah. Um, that feeling of like. I never thought about it this way. And you've helped me to think about an issue that honestly, I never had to think about. So that's been the main reaction. Trust me. I know what it's like. I got a book called reading while black and <laughs> folks get in their feelings about that title. Boy, <laughs> it's a great title. <laughs> um, I'm saying like the people who haven't, what I'm saying, the people who haven't read yeah, the book. Yeah. So how do you balance then um, writing a book about motherhood and being a mom is a huge part of who you are. But you also are a writer and you are a teacher. And do you ever feel like that put it making your first book about motherhood pigeonholed you? So they even though the book, the content of the book isn't like that, but the idea that you wrote like a, about being a parent um, makes, makes people kind of put you in the mom lane, not in the writer, public intellectual teacher lane. Yeah, totally. I I I feel like that would have been a possibility. Um, I'm actually working on three more books. I right know now. that's why we transitioning. That's the, that's called and that's called so, setting you up. There we go. I know. I know. I took it. I saw <laughs> yeah, okay, it. I saw yeah, you. Take your lane. <laughs> um, and I think one of the reasons why I jumped so quickly into new projects is because I was like, okay, like, I'm not just gonna keep writing about motherhood, and I'm not just gonna write about like. You know, I'm also not just going to write about being a black woman. I'm not just going to write about being a teacher. I'm not just going to write about. I think um, one of the great experiences is we got a letter from IVP kind of like giving us an update on sales. And um, and I talked to my agent and I was like, hey, I got this letter. Like, looks like sales are going well. What should I do now? And he was like, it's a really good time to think about another book. And I'm going, wow, my book, my book just came out in March. Like it's August. I I need to be thinking about another book. And he was like, I mean, you know, strike while the iron's hot. So I was talking to Philip and I was thinking how, what's next? Like, I don't want to write a book about motherhood next. I know that. Um, and I don't want to write a book that's broadly about, um, racial reconciliation yeah. like, again because the thing about the thing about being a writer being a writer which i'm sure you yes. have experienced too is people are just like oh yes what brand are you yes um can i tell you people like when they review my book i someone said to me i was surprised how much bible is in it it's called biblical interpretation like the book's about the bible wow. and so like people think that this it's like a racial reconciliation book um yep. and and it's black, yeah and i'm it. black and i wrote it and so people just want you to say okay Keep teaching me about rec- racial reconciliation, which is fine. But um, there's a reason. People are going to be mad like when, when the next book I drop is a, like a Galatians commentary or something. So, I mean, I I'm get it. I'm here for it. <laughs> oh, I'm here for it. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I am all the way here yes. for it. Um, so I, I just, the next project, like the one that's coming up right now is a book about um, Black women in Christian history whose names you do not know, but you should. Oh, look at this. Hey, everybody. Producer Richard Clark here. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know about another podcast they've just launched. And honestly, if you're into disruptors, I think you're going to like this one. It's called the Every Voice Now podcast. Every week, Myla Kim and Ed Gilbreth showcase the stories of how authors of color manage to write and publish their books. As Gilbert explains, those authors are doing something more vulnerable than just putting words to a page. They're sharing their entire life with an audience. 
for anyone who's actually going to be able to write a book and see it through to completion, it has to be more than just, I want to write a book. It has to really be their life, and it grows out of that, that journey and, and what God has been doing for years and years. I heard another IVP author, Brenda Salter-McNeil, say, one time that one of her latest books that she worked on, she started writing it, but then over time she realized it was writing her. You have to be just immersed and absorbed by the message and the story in order to actually finish a book, I would think. And we're seeing this in the stories of the different authors that are on the Every Voice Now podcast. It's bigger than just words to paper. It's, it's life. I think by the time people listen to this podcast, we will have our first Black and South Asian American vice president, probably um, in large part due to Stacey Abrams. And so this is kind of turning into, in some sense, the year of the Black woman. How have you like looked upon that? And did that have anything to do with you deciding to write a book about Black women of faith? Um, so how, are those things related? Are they separate? What, what do you think? Just like with Mother to Son, I just wrote what was inspiring me at the time. And then it suddenly became relevant um, to more people. When I say relevant, I mean, it's always been relevant to me. I'm a Black woman, like every day of the week, whether it's in the news cycle or not. But I mean, it's become more relevant um, to a wider cross-section of people. But honestly, what made me write the book is that when I wrote Mother to Son, I have a chapter in there about uh, representation matters. And I mentioned some names of some Black missionaries. And honestly, my friend Karen Ellis gave me those names. And, you know, I just talked to her. I was like, hey, tell me some Black Christians who, because I mean, growing up in predominantly white evangelical circles, it's like, all right, so there's like no faithful Black people in history. I guess, I guess it's just a bunch of, of white people. Um, and so... Karen gave me a couple names and it just, I mean, it took off. First, I was going to write about Ida B. Wells and Fannie Lou Hamer. And um, yeah, I was, I was like, okay. But then I started digging even deeper and I found these names that I did not know. I found like Sarah G. Stanley, this white, she's white presenting missionary who went South after the civil war to teach um, free people how to read. And like, she gave racist such bad tongue lashings it is beautiful it is beautiful i keep talking about the one thing that so this is this is you want to talk about how research changes you one of the things the, the biggest change that i underwent while researching reading while black was understanding black rhetoric mm-hmm. and i had unconsciously kind of taken this posture that if you speak in measured tones then people will just listen to you more. And I started getting pushback when I thought I was using relatively measured tones. Yep. And then I went back and I read Frederick Douglass and he like melt, he melting faces in like the 1800s. Absolutely. And I was like, and then you start, and you look at the abolitionist literature and the slave testimonies. This was in the, they were telling the truth when it costs something. Yeah. And I said, and, and I realized that the problem isn't the rhetoric. The problem is the thing itself. And the fact that you have a, a woman who was willing to speak in that way during that time speaks to, like, first of all, the courage that her faith inspires, but also this burning need that I see amongst Black 
men and women in every generation to make their voice heard. So how do you deal with this fact now that like, and maybe it's a good thing. Like people are saying, we need to read black women and you're a black woman writer. Do you feel that as pressure? Do you feel that as paternalism? How are you receiving? Are you feeling this is like, finally people are paying attention to it? Do you feel like it's lip service? Like how are you responding to the let's pay attention to black women? Like, um, conversation that's going on in the culture. I'm here for it, honestly. I It's so funny. I So I teach at a majority white school. And um, the other week we had an instance where a teacher was running up on um, a, she's teaching the seniors and they're talking about constitutional law and they're talking about how the founding fathers viewed slavery. And she was like, Jasmine, I know that you research this issue a lot. Could you come talk to the seniors? And it was one of those things where like, it was just awkward. It wasn't handled super well. And so I went and I talked to them and I'm getting another chance to do it with like actual preparation and a PowerPoint and handouts. And um, somebody at the school was like, Jasmine, I just hate that like you're the black woman and they're asking you to teach about this. Like, why can't they teach about it themselves? And I'm like, honestly, that's why I'm here. Like, if you don't feel comfortable teaching about constitutional law and slavery, I have spent my adult life learning about that because I want to know, like, I want to understand. And if you're going to allow me to come in and if you're going to allow me to teach what I want to teach, which they are, they do, um, then by all means, I'll come in. And I think the difference, I was trying to explain to somebody that the only way that I see it as paternalistic or tokenism is if it's somebody asking me to do something that's not in my wheelhouse. So me talking about women, um, me talking about history, me talking about like black womanhood, that's all Jasmine stuff. So I'm happy to do it. Now, if somebody came to me and they were like, Jasmine, you know, somebody needs to really address like unequal housing in, in, in America and like you're black, I would, then I would feel a little bit some kind of way. So how do you, and, and, I, and, I, and I can speak about this as an African-American like male who writes, and there's been a general push to just like read black people more generally. But let me ask you this question. How, and this is, this, I would, I, I'm hoping to learn something in this moment. How do you speak about like critically engaging black male and female voices? So when I say this, I mean like after we've read, mm. you know, people say read black people. And then I would see people list like yeah. 10 books and we all believe 10 different things. Right. So, yep. so like it yep. ain't as simple as just like read black people as a black woman who wants to have her own space in the Academy. Have you found it helpful to critically mm -hmm. engage with black people who you disagree with? Because I've made it a habit to almost never come for other black people in public just because it's not enough of us for me to be like fighting with you on the internet. So, I, and so like, so how did how do, so well then what do you do then do you just kind of say I disagree quietly like how have you found it helpful to critically engage at least in your own private world black people who you disagree with mm -hmm. so um, one of the chapters in my book is called uh, the woman that almost got left out her name is Nanny Helen Burroughs and she was um, basically they called her the female Booker T Washington and have me back on and we'll talk about Booker T Washington but um, you know not my favorite so i was reading some of her stuff and at first i was really excited because i found another black woman's voice that i'd never heard before and i was reading it and and some of it was really booker t washington-esque and i was like oh i'm not gonna put her in the book because yeah ew like we don't need any more of this and then i stopped myself and i said you know what this woman spent her entire life 
pouring into the black community. I can't count the amount of associations she was a part of. She started a school. She was part of the NAACP. She was part of the National Baptist Convention. Like she has essays on essays on essays about this. And so let me read and see if I can find something that I actually agree with. And lo and behold, the more I read of her, the more compassionate I became, the more I understood where she was coming from. And the more I started to see that as much as she critiqued black people and black culture, sis was not here for white racism either. Like she literally talks about white people having to overcome their whiteness in the early, like in the early 20th century. So I think finding things that I can appreciate about people that I disagree with has gone such a long way for me where I went from, Oh yeah, she's not going to be in my book because I don't want to represent that kind of thought to man. Isn't it so great that I can put a diversity of thought in my book and show that not everybody is on the same wavelength all the time, but that's what it means to be an intellectual. And that's what it means to take part in conversation. She was known for rigorous debate. Like, am I capable of that kind of debate? Um, And coming more from that place than, I, I was so thinking, binary, like especially in the yeah, this evangelical circles. It's just like, well, it is. Are they solid? And it's like, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> it depends on it depends yeah, on whether or yeah. not you're black. And, 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 and this and this is what I mean. I'm trying to I'm trying to be as honest as I can here. So there is t- like if you if you do a, if you do a master's of divinity degree or if you go to any theology, I'm going to talk about theology side. There'll be black. There will be white authors who you will who you will cite in agreement and disagreement, even though there's fundamental like divergences. So you can have someone like call people can say, mm-hmm. God, "I love Carl Bart" or "I love this person," but this part of Carl Bart I don't agree yeah. with, but I find this part helpful or this part. I, and so there is right. actually a reading and a sophisticated appropriation of the entirety of the Western intellectual tradition. Um, people who are like not at all Catholic don't have a Catholic bone in their body will love Augustine and ignores ecclesiology, for example. But it's only with Black people, or it's largely Black people, where we have to be in agreement on every single thing before we're heard. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very difficult to have a sophisticated appropriation of Black thought, where you can say, this part of what this person said, I found helpful. This part of what the person said, I found horrible. Instead, what they want is they want the black person to come on and criticize the black people who they don't like. And so it's one of the things that I'm trying to learn how to do is engage in a, a conversation with black thinkers in the same way that I was taught to engage with other thinkers. And that may seem straightforward, but in these spaces, when it's not an unapologetic, mm-hmm. everything this person has ever said is mm-hmm. horrible, then people don't want to listen to it. And I think it's in, in, in a, and I'm trying yeah. to find a way to do it with the same way with black women, because if if people can say they came to the conversation about black intellectual thought late, I would say I'm not as guilty of that as it relates to black men. But it's the sim- I realized that at a certain point, there's this gaping hole in my, my my intellectual development. I had kind of an intuitive my mom raised me. I had black, strong black women around me. And like vulnerable black women around me who made it okay to be vulnerable, um, and I had that as a mm-hmm. kind of a cultural value. We had black preach, black female preachers, and all of those things from my Baptist church. But as far as reading a lot of kind of published black female thought, that's even harder to find than like mm-hmm. black male thought. And then I had to realize, okay, I'm starting to read it. How do I critically engage it and not just be, be paternalistic and say, no, this woman deserves 
my full attention and my full engagement, not just my passive reception, but how do I go beyond also being just hostile because it's different. And so for me, it's a lot of like, um, I don't want you to call it getting accustomed to that kind of rhythm and adding that into my, my plate of scholarship. And so it's just good to hear you kind of thinking through the same thing. And you also saying like, Oh, because I think that whenever you write and tell me if I'm wrong about this, I'm thinking about what you said about editing that uh, your book. Whenever you're a black writer, you're always thinking about how you're presenting us to the world. And so there's oh, the desire sure. to kind of yes. edit voices so that you can present our best yes. foot forward instead of letting black people be messy. Yes. And so I guess uh-huh. I'm, I guess I'm talking to myself about saying how do how do we get to the place where we allow our own intellectual tradition to be messy sometimes. So you got you got this book. Mm-hmm. Um, what a, can you at least give us like a little bit of a preview of the other two? At least conceptually, what you got going on? People need to know what's coming next for Jasmine. Yeah, one is that uh, I'm writing a young adult version of the book about Black women, so that people can use it in schools. And it was so funny when I pitched the idea to my publisher because um, they were like, "Oh." One of the publishers that I was talking to was like, oh, um, are you comfortable talking to that like sixth, seventh, eighth grade like bracket? And again, just that idea of like we're we're one thing. So like she's a writer. She's a mother. She's that. I'm like, I teach. Oh, don't books. don't even get me started by people <laughs> yes. saying I'm a, you're an academic. I was like, let me tell you something. <laughs> I, I was like, yes, I am. So it's going to be a, a young adult version of that book. And then I'm also writing a book about. Um, womanhood and shame and the ways that shame impacts our ideas of womanhood and what the gospel says to shame. You're a writer. You have these books and you're trying to live as as a fully formed Christian mother, wife, woman, person. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you what are you hoping for? And, and this is to once again, put some context. Well, I don't know when this is going to air. We're coming into um, kind of this, we're coming at the end of the election season, hopefully, and into um, kind of our new reality. Like, are you hopeful for the future? Has this last year of being in the public and finding your voice, has it made you more cynical, less cynical? Like, as you look to the future, what do you see for you and for the culture more broadly? I'm hopeful for the future. I think I've spent my entire life Um, in some measure of spotlight because of whose daughter I am. And this last year has been one of the first times in my life where I can clearly see that I'm becoming my own person and I like who she is. And that's, that's really neat. And so I'm, I'm feeling hopeful to just continue to grow and to continue to learn and to continue to learn how to express God's truth through writing. I love writing. I love it so much. Can you say more about, um, like, what does it feel like for the people who are trying to find themselves? Everybody doesn't have a famous dad. Yeah. But everybody's trying to come into their own identity and their own vocation. Like, was there a moment where it became clear or something that changed in you where you said, this is who God made me to be and I'm comfortable in it and the people who don't like it can kind of go kick rocks? Was there there something that happened or was it just over time? Um, Is when I got my my book deal. This last year, um, I had four publishers interested in the book and it had nothing to do with anything about whose daughter I was or anything about whose. And it was like, I 
all of my life, I have wanted to be a writer. I have wanted to be a teacher. Six-year-old Jasmine would have said the same thing. Eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, all of my life. And it's this is the first year of my life where I am collecting a paycheck as a writer that can sustain me. Like it is my full-time vocation. And it had nothing to do with anybody but me. And that was this huge moment for me to realize that all of the internal work that I had been doing over the last three, four, five, six years um, was really coming to fruition, being able to see. And I mean, not everybody, you know, not everybody's a writer, but like, I just think finding that, finding that vocation and finding that peace and that joy in that vocation and just seeing all the things that God's poured into me for this moment has been um, just incredible, an incredible experience. I remember, um, for me, in case people want, this is confession time. Um, I remember um, when I when I first started writing for the New York Times, mm-hmm. and people don't know the full backstory of that. But when they first reached out to me, they said, "Hey Esau, could you write something on reparations?" And I said, "Actually, no, because I know nothing about the topic. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, I know about reparations, right. but I don't know it other than just like you know, give black people stuff because y'all treated us bad. It was right, nothing sophisticated." Right. And so um, the first article that I wrote for them was about Christmas. And then the second article that I wrote for them was about the coronavirus. Mm. And at first, even then, it was like, it's just random. And then when um, Ahmed Arbery Arbery happened, Mm -hmm. and I don't think that I have been, that summer, I was was mad for like two months. I mean, like out of my mind. And I wrote a like the article um, what the Bible says about black anger. The mm-hmm. second, the one before that was Ahmed Arbery in the America that doesn't exist. I loved both of those, by the way. Um, and oh, I like I snapped. I was like in an out of body. I was I, I was like I'm done with this. And this this is what I could tell you. Like I I found myself as a writer on the second one of those. I'm, I mean, what the Bible says about black anger. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you this. I wrote that article with the goal of getting fired by the New York Times. When I sat down and wrote it, because I knew, I knew we, they, they don't listen. To, New York Times doesn't listen to this. So what do I care? So, uh, so let me tell you how I was feeling. I had written the, I had written the Ahmed Arbery article, and then right after this, like, I mean, not right after this, but like George Floyd becomes public and all of this other stuff. And so I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, and, um, and I say to myself. This might get through the like. This might get through the editorial process, but I know once this hits, nobody. Because I'm going full Jesus. Right, right. I'm going like it's going to be all black at the beginning and all Jesus at the end. Mm-hmm. And there is a line when I wrote about people smiling um, as they took pictures of black bodies. Like there's always been evidence of black suffering yep. that didn't move America to change. Yeah. And then I said the only solution I'm going to put into this is Jesus. And I don't care if I ever write anything again. I'm just going to say it the way I feel it. And so after I wrote that article, and then a week or two later, they called and said, do you want to do a monthly column? I was like, oh, okay, then now I know how we're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And, but it was but it was this moment where I felt like I know exactly what God wants me to say. Yes. And I know that some folks aren't going to like it and I don't care. Yeah. It's like you got you have I don't to care. say it. It was, it was, a, that article is an a, a intentional act. I literally said to myself, when I sent the email off, goodbye, New York Times. 
I'm out. Nice. It was like a drop. It was a drop. It was a drop the mic. Not in the sense of quality, in the sense of saying it exactly how I. It's called what the Bible says about. Like that's that idea. I was just like, man. And what the the, the important part about that though is, I think that every person, and like you said, whether or not you're a writer, you have to get to the point where you are clear, Mm -hmm. black Christian. Yeah. About what God has called you to do. And you have to be able to pursue that fearlessly. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, the reason that I wanted to have you back for this season is that I saw you doing the same thing and I saw you paying the price for it. Yeah. And even though I only met you, I only, I've never actually been in the same room with you, I don't think. Um, but I saw it's like, man, they coming for Jasmine on the internet just for her shining. And so I'm glad that like on the other end of it, you found your vocation I hope that people like appreciate it. The last thing I want to ask you is this. How has like, how has that, and I know I've asked you to you a bunch of times, has this made you like more defensive? Are you less trusting? Like how have you managed to protect yourself and keep yourself healthy during all of this? And what advice would you give to other people who are finding their voice and who are paying for it? How do you, how would you give them advice on how to keep themselves as they continue to move into the world and experience opposition and misunderstanding. I, I've honestly learned that nobody is owed the sound of my voice. So as far as this, like this election happened, I have not said a thing about Trump. I have not said a thing about Biden. I have not said a thing about Harris. I have not said a thing about Pence. And I think it comes down to, I speak when I feel a conviction to share that is going to withhold, withstand any criticism that comes. If I don't have a conviction that's able to withstand that criticism, I keep my mouth closed. And it's been a process to learn that for me, but I, I have learned it. And I, I just, I realize that people are not owed my opinion on whatever. Yeah, I feel like Twitter has become this place where it's like, it's how the common man can experience paparazzi, like going outside yeah. and everybody being, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Well, Miss Holmes, yeah. what do you think about? And I think that people just feel like they have to comment on every single thing. Like like you said, with reparations, it's like, that's not, that's not my area. So yeah. I'm not going to speak. And this whole election situation, I am not, I just, you know, not my, not my area. So I'm just like, I'm just going to let other people talk and I'm going to be a fly yeah. on the wall. <laughs> so interestingly enough, I'm glad that you said that. This might be freedom for people. You've not seen a lot from me in this same same election cycle mm-hmm. coming in to October into November. I have some articles that are coming up that I think will be published in the Times and the Post afterwards. But they were saying, well, we're, we're right now, we're going to put our election articles first. Yeah. And I didn't have anything to say that, like, other people who were more qualified couldn't say. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, I fell back. As a matter of fact, and I don't think the people really believe this and why would they care? But if you could go back and look over like the last four years, I almost never actually write directly about the president. Yeah. Same. I, I mean, every now and then he comes across, but there are zero articles that like address him directly. Yep. Because it's not at the center of my, I'm a New Testament scholar. Right. And in so much as sometimes politics impinge upon the life of the church and the church's witness, I will push back on it. Mm-hmm. But I was, I didn't, I didn't, I feel like there was, there was something to be mad about every single day on the internet. Yeah. And I just didn't want to be mad all the time. And there's literally, it's like, I mean, there's there's some people who used to tweet. They used to say, okay, internet, what we mad about today? And I noticed that. And I was like, yeah. every day there's something. And like, 
I didn't have the policy competence to be enraged about mm-hmm. the myriad of issues Same. that were coming. Same. It's like, I, I do not have, uh, forgive me, I don't have a developed understanding of immigration policy. Mm-hmm. But I know you shouldn't be locking up kids and tossing their parents away. Yep. So, but that's the, that's that's the level of sophistication I got for you. Yep. I mean, I don't have a a developed form of a developed idea about police reform. I can say that it's necessary, and I can say this is the reasons why. Yep. But I'm happy to see the ground to people who have those. And that's what that's part of what this podcast is about. You just say, bring me your passion. Yeah, and teach me. here's the opportunity to teach me. Uh-huh. So hopefully, people have learned something from Jasmine. Speaking of speaking of black women, <laughs> isn't there a podcast that you and another black woman do? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, my friend Portia and I have started a podcast called Sweet Tea, and it is just a place for us to talk about everything under the sun. We've had episodes about marriage, and we've had episodes about politics, and episodes about theology, and um, just a place for us to talk and a place for us to listen to others and just stay in our stay in our lanes stay in our wheelhouses and have a really good time um one of the running jokes that we have on the podcast right now is that i know all of my all of the capitals of all 50 states in the united states so every every episode when there's like a lull in conversation i just like give a couple states and capitals so a fun thing for (laughs) listeners to do is to because sometimes i don't get them right so Yeah, poking in to be like, actually, Jasmine, Augusta is the capital of Maine, not Georgia. It's fun. Oh, there we go. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If there is a season three, you might be our, our, our like recurring guest that we bring back every year. I'm Hopefully here for we treated it. you well. Go yes. pick up Mother to Son and when all of her other books drop, pick those up too. I, I'm not I don't have actually I don't have three books coming out in the next couple of years. I'm doing what I can. Thank you for listening. If you're a human being, words hurt. We, as Black people of faith, are doing our best to articulate the gospel and the demands of the Christian tradition as we understand it in the public square. And even when you're right and you feel comfortable in your convictions, the criticism of other Christians still hurts. Me and Jasmine both have kind of bear some of the marks of that. And so it was um, both good to have someone to commiserate with, but also difficult to hear. No one escapes this without wounds. Hopefully it encourages people to learn that those wounds need not be destructive. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We would be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com.